0: God's judgment is about to fall on Israel, and it's going to be very difficult for Israel. God has given them many opportunities to change and to repent and to come back to him, and they haven't, and he's warned them through the prophets that judgment's coming. That judgment is going to come in just a few years after Isaiah writes this in the form of the Assyrian army coming in to conquer the northern part of Israel. It might be similar today to us as a nation losing Montana and North Dakota and South Dakota, the northern part of our country, to an invading army. And Isaiah is saying that's coming. The Assyrians will be used by God to punish Israel. If you look in Isaiah, and we'll back up into 8, I want to show you just how bad he says it's going to be at the end of chapter 8. Look at verse 21. Describing what the people are going to experience in God's judgment he says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. And they'll turn their faces upward. And that's upward in pride. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Well, Isaiah is using words like great distress These people will be hungry with no relief. They're going to find no satisfaction in life, just this constant nagging hunger that's never fulfilled. There's going to be gloom, anguish, and thick darkness. In verse 20, right before where we started reading, he describes what their life's going to be like is like living in a night with no dawn coming. So if you can imagine just endless night, and there's not going to be another sunrise for a long time. That's how Isaiah describes what life's going to be like for these people. He calls it being in a land of shadows. It's a description of what the nation Israel is going to be like, both spiritually and morally and nationally. And the end of chapter 8 is it's just horrible. It's all bad news. But with the beginning of chapter 9, hope shows up. And it's the hope we know now on this side of the New Testament is the hope of Christmas. What I'm going to read here in Matthew 9, Matthew quoted and we read earlier in the service, so you'll hear some of these words again because Matthew repeated them with the coming of Christ. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. After describing how horrible it will be, he says, but, verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verses one through five, Isaiah is describing, um, giving these people kind of a beginning glimpse of how much better things are going to be sometime in the future in verse 3 of what we just read he says the people who've been living in darkness for so long there is a light coming dawn will come again there will be another sunrise if you notice in verse 3 he describes the joy they're going to have as a joy that's before you it's a joy that's before God folks there's joy and then there's joy in God's presence and he's describing the joy that will be in the presence of God that's a holy joy That's a sacred joy that you experience in God's presence. He describes this joy as being during the the time of harvest. That's kind of hard for us to understand because we don't live in an agricultural-based society where literally you raise today what you're going to eat tomorrow. I mean, it is day-to-day just staying alive. And in that type of agricultural society in the Old Testament, Or you didn't always have everything you wanted to eat because you were waiting on the harvest. When the day of harvest got here, those people knew no greater joy than the day of harvest because that one time a year they had plenty. Or he says at the end of verse 3, it's like for a soldier. It's the joy a soldier knows when the battle's finally over and you live through it. You're one of the soldiers who got to live through the war. And you're getting the end of verse 3 to divide the spoils. So it's the joy of of a farmer at harvest or a soldier at the end of the battle, and you look around and you're still among the living. You didn't get slaughtered. He says in verse 4, it's like when the enemy's rod that's been beating your back gets broken. He says, as in the day of Midian, that's a reference to Judges 7, when Gideon the judge was raised up to help defeat an enemy. And in verse 1, he's very specific. He says, this hope is going to come from the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. If you're not terribly familiar with the Old Testament, when the Israelites moved into the promised land, the 12 tribes divided up the land. They were out, the land was allocated to them. And those two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, they they inherited the land that became Galilee. And even 700 years earlier, Isaiah is saying, the hope is going to come from Galilee. That's where Jesus was raised. That's where Jesus grew up. What is it that's going to bring these people this much hope? These people that have been living in thick darkness and gloom and despair and a land of shadows and a land where the sun never rises again. What's going to bring them that hope? Well, verse 6 For unto us a child is born. It's a child. Church, we're so familiar with this story, but if the gloom is because of an army that's coming to invade and the hope is a child, that's quite a contrast. We might not think a child would offer that much hope against an invading army. We're going to read verses 6 and 7, and I just want to point out to you what I would call the three C's of Isaiah 9. The three C's. We're just going to talk about one of the C's today. The first C is obviously the word child. It's amazing that the promise, the hope, the light that's going to dawn is because it's a child. Let's keep reading. Verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's the three C's I'd give you, and we'll just talk about the middle one. But the first one is the word child. It is amazing that the hope is a child. The second C I would give you is the word character, and that's the one we're going to talk about. The character of this child is revealed in the four names that he's given. The last C I would give you has to do with his control. If you catch in verses 6 and 7, several references to the government's going to rest on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. It's a picture of Christ coming as a ruler. He will take control. And his reign, his reign, government, as he leads, Isaiah says, will be marked by peace, and it'll be marked by justice, and it'll be marked by righteousness. Israel's leaders at this time were none of those things. Their government were none of those things. And Isaiah says, one day, help is coming, and when this leader comes, his reign will be marked by holiness. There will be justice in it. And it'll be marked by peace. The very opposite of what these people were experiencing. So you have the child, you have his character, and you have one day the control he's going to take. May I just remind you, if you're a Christian this morning, one day when Christ sets up his reign on earth, this is what his government will look like. If you're a Christian, you're saying you have brought your life under the authority of Christ. He, He is your government now. He is your ruler. He is your king. Our lives should reflect this rule in, in our lives. There should be a certain element of peace in our lives that the world doesn't totally understand, a certain element of justice in our lives, a certain element of righteousness in our lives because we're now in this kingdom. The government rests on his shoulders in my life. It doesn't rest on my shoulders. This child should change the leadership in your life. And one day he will over all creation, but for us that have already submitted to him, our life should reflect these very things. But in verse 6, we learn about his character, and that's what I want us to talk about just for a few minutes this morning, the character of this child. And the names by which he's called reveal that character. Those four names, again, is that he's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. All that church is wrapped up in Bethlehem. And I do think there are times as Christians, we need to set aside even all the other things that show up in the Bible about the first Christmas. We need to set aside the shepherds. We need to set aside the wise men. We need to set aside the manger. We need to set aside the star. And we need to just focus on the child. What was this child like? What was his character like? So let me just walk through these four names briefly. And as we begin kind of the Christmas season in December, reminding you that these four things are the character of this child. First, he's called Wonderful Counselor. It literally means exceptional or distinguished. Jesus is the Wonderful, Exceptional, Distinguished Counselor. Now, let me just ask, don't answer out loud, but typically, who do you go to when you need counsel? When you need some wise advice and you just like to get some input from somebody, who do you go to for counsel? Typically, I think we look for two things in a, in a good counselor. First, we look for somebody who's lived long enough to have some perspective and some wisdom on life. We want someone who's lived long enough that they have some perspective and wisdom on life. When was the last time you went to a six-year-old for advice? Sit him down and be like, hey, put your Cheerios down. I need to talk to you for a minute about a major decision in my life. We go to somebody who has some experience Second, we go to somebody who knows and loves us. Somebody that knows what our dreams are in life. Somebody that knows what our limits are in life. Somebody that knows who we are and loves us. I would ask you, when's the last time you went to an absolute stranger for advice? Just a random stranger on the street. You've got a major decision to make in life and you ask advice from a stranger. You don't. Not a six-year-old or a stranger. This child grows up to be the ultimate, distinguished, wonderful counselor because he meets both of these things in our lives. Has he lived long enough to gain some perspective? Well, how about all eternity? Is he wise? Well, how about the mind of God? How about the wisdom and mind of God in this child? Does he know you and love you? Well, the cross says he does. Jeremiah says he's known you ever since you were in the womb. And the cross says he's loved you for all eternity. So he's been around long enough to have some perspective, and he knows and loves you. This Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate, distinguished, exceptional, wonderful counselor. In John 7, you don't have to turn there, but there's a a really neat phrase in John 7. The people who heard this wonderful counselor teach and preach, in John 7 they say this, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Never. Never have we ever heard a man speak the way this man speaks? But you know what that is? That's perfect words. Absolute truth from the wonderful counselor. You know, if you could have stood next to those shepherds on that very first Christmas night, looking at this child, you could have said, let's call him wonderful counselor. Because, I'm going to give you something on each of these titles that this child takes away from us. You could call him Wonderful Counselor, and this child helps take away our confusion. If you know Christ as your Wonderful Counselor, there's a certain element of confusion that he helps take away in your life if he is the Wonderful Counselor. If Christians will walk with Christ, hear his voice, cherish his words, obey his commands, try to hear him, We will not know confusion the way the world knows confusion. the, The world's confused about so many things. And we have a wonderful counselor who would love to give us advice and help take away part of our confusion in life. I'm not saying you'll have perfect clarity on every issue in your life, but I'm saying this wonderful counselor helps take away some of the confusion. He's a perfect counselor about eternity. He's a perfect counselor about forgiveness. He's a perfect counselor about sin He's a perfect counselor about marriage. He's a perfect counselor about morals. He's a perfect counselor in every way. So I would tell you the first thing about his character is that he is the wonderful counselor and he takes away part of our confusion in life. Number two, Isaiah says, let's also call him Mighty God. That's the second part of his character of who this child is. What a name! Mighty God. In this passage in Isaiah 9, we see both his humanity, because he's going to be a child. That highlights the humanity of Christ. He is a child. Then he comes along and calls him mighty God. That highlights the deity of God. Even Isaiah was getting a glimpse that this Savior who's coming would be both man, come as a child, and God will call him mighty God. Do you guys realize that from an earthly perspective, I realize from a heavenly perspective, Jesus died on the cross because it was according to the... Eternal counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's what God wanted. But from an earthly perspective, why the men who killed him, killed him? From an earthly perspective, it was Jesus' claim to be God that got him killed. In John chapter 5, after healing a man on the Sabbath, which really irritated the religious leaders that Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath, in John 5, Jesus really offended him because when they said, hey, you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath, he told them, I'll heal any day I want to. Because my father works any day he wants to, and I'll work any day I want to. And oh, it offended them Because they realized he was claiming to be equal with God. And if God works on the Sabbath, I can work on the Sabbath. I can work any day I choose to. And they never forgave him for that. He claimed to be God in John 5, and it was the first step. In John's gospel, John 5 is the first step toward the cross from an earthly perspective. They never got over what he did in John 5. Well, all the way back 700 years before this, Isaiah is making the same claim Jesus did in John 5. This child needs to be called Mighty God. Listen, you shouldn't call somebody Mighty God if they're not God, right? This child is God. After providing, now watch this, after providing perfect counsel as the wonderful counselor, he then provides enough power for us to obey his counsel. If all he did was provide the advice, but not the power for us to be able to obey the advice, we would be very frustrated people. But he provides the counsel, live like this, do this, don't do this, become this kind of person, and then he comes along as mighty God and gives us the power to do it. It would be similar if, uh, if you tried to explain to me how to start your car, and you gave me all the counsel and all the advice how to go out there and start it and sent me out there, but never gave me the keys. I could try and try and be very frustrated. Jesus comes along and gives us the counsel how to live life, and then as mighty God, he gives us the power to do it. You could have stood next to those shepherds on the very first Christmas night and said, let's call this child Mighty God because this child takes away our excuses. He's wonderful counselor and helps take away our confusion. He's mighty God, which helps take away our excuses. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're reading in Scripture what the wonderful counselor has to say, and, and this happens to all of us, God puts his finger on an area of our, our lives that he wants changed. He puts his finger on a sin in our life. And he says, I want you to repent of that sin. I want you to forsake that sin. I want that out of your life if my reply when god does that is god i've tried before but this thing this nagging sin it's been a problem for five years 10 years 20 years in my life i've tried i can't beat it bethlehem means you can't say that anymore because he's mighty god he's mighty for me to say, God, uh, you're going to have to live with this sin because I'm going to have to live with this sin because I can't beat it. We're saying you're not mighty, God. You're just a little God. For Isaiah to say this child that's coming in 700 years is a wonderful counselor, and once we have his advice, we now have the power to do it because he's mighty God. If God, as you're reading Scripture, if God's like, hey, here's how I've gifted you. Here's the spiritual gifts I've given you, and I want you to use those spiritual gifts. Don't just come to church and, and, and sit. Use your gift to serve and minister to other people. Be, be a servant. If your reply to that is, God, I, I, can't, I can't. I can't do anything. I, you're saying you're, you're not mighty enough to use me in your church. You may be able to use other people, but not me. Mighty God means, yes, you can. When God tells us to do something, if we don't do it, it's not because of a lack of power. Not if Isaiah is right and his name should be called Mighty God. Mighty God lying in a manger. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking at that little baby and saying, yeah, let's put mighty in front of his name? If this mighty God comes into your life, he will make a difference. Wonderful counselor means he helps take away our confusion. Mighty God means he helps take away our excuses. The third name that tells us something about the character of the child we celebrate at Christmas is everlasting father. It's a phrase that literally could mean father of eternity. It could mean father from eternity. It could mean father for eternity. Or it could mean everlasting father. Listen, this title describes his relationship to time and his relationship to you as far as time is concerned, he's forever. As far as you're is concerned, he's father. He's the forever father. If the child, now watch this, if the child is mighty God, that's his second name. If that's true, it drives us to the third name. He also must be eternal. If he's God, he has to be eternal. So the second name drives us to the third name, and we do believe he's mighty God. Therefore, he's been around forever. He's forever father. He's eternal father. He's everlasting father. This child will grow up to be a tender, faithful, wise, loving, nonstop father. We tend to think of God the father in terms of being a father because that's the way he's presented so much in the Bible. He's God the father. But the second person of the Trinity, the son, that phrase can also be applied to him because Isaiah does it. He's an everlasting father. He's a parental figure in our lives, always providing for and always protecting his children. So I think you could have stood next to those shepherds on the first Christmas night and not only said he's wonderful counselor, so he helps take away our confusion, and he's mighty God, so he helps take away our excuses. I think you could have said to the shepherds, hey, let's also call this little baby everlasting father because he helps take away our loneliness. He helps take away our loneliness. I, I, I don't know in a group this size what kind of dad you had. We may have represented in this group some... Some people who had unbelievable fathers and some that may have had worthless fathers. So when you hear the term dad, I don't know what comes to your mind. None of you, none of us had perfect earthly fathers. And Isaiah says you you can have one now. You can have a perfect, everlasting, eternal, forever, nonstop, wise father. And I would say for those of you that maybe had good fathers, when times get really rough, there's nobody you'd rather go talk to than your parents. There's just something about that. For people who've never had a good father, you come to Christ and you you receive in him this everlasting, permanent father. To have God as your everlasting father. Now, please, when I say it takes away the loneliness, I'm saying if you have Christ as the eternal, everlasting father, it doesn't mean you'll never feel loneliness. I'm saying you'll never feel loneliness like the world does because you now have this father. I'm not in any way minimizing the loss you may feel when you lose someone you love or when someone close to you dies. I'm not minimizing that. I'm simply saying this child means you're not alone. You're not alone. Wendy and I had a, had a chance this weekend to talk to a, an older man in his 70s, recently widowed. And he was telling Wendy and I the story of losing his spouse that he loved so much. And, and she died over a long battle with cancer, very difficult several-year battle with cancer. And as he was sharing with Wendy about that, he told us, he said, I, I, I journaled the last year of my wife's life every day, just so I would have a record of how God carried me through this. And as he was telling us about it, I mean, it was, it was brutal. It was brutal what it was like. And the journal that he wrote, he published in a book, and he gave Wendy and I a copy of the book. And I sat down that night and was just reading some of his diary entries from his journal. And when they realized that she was going to lose the battle, the journal entries there were hard, hard. I mean, he would write about their doctor's appointments and their visits and how she, he and her would talk about it. And then he wrote, I would go bury my head in my tear-stained pillow every night and realize in a few days I will be facing life without her. I will start a new chapter without her, and it scares me. And then the next entry, I buried my head in my tear, tear-stained pillows again. And you, just, you hear this, and, you're just, and then a few days later, it's Christ is carrying me, Christ is carrying me, Christ is carrying me. It's Isaiah saying you have this everlasting father. You may feel alone. You'll never be alone. This father takes away the loneliness. When you experience the darkest valleys and the deepest nights, Isaiah in chapter 8 is telling them it's going to feel like you're going to have night with no dawn coming. You're going to long for the sunrise and it's not coming for a long time. But when it comes, you get a wonderful counselor, you get a mighty God, and you get an everlasting father. That's the character of this child that we celebrate at Christmas. Well, the last, he calls him a prince of peace. So I want to talk about this just for a second. The last title that reveals the character of Christ is prince of peace. We live with conflict every day. We live with conflict every single day. Democrats are battling Republicans and Republicans are battling Democrats every day. Democracies are battling dictators and dictators are battling freedom-loving democracies every day. Police are battling crime. Sometimes we even see children battling children and it shows up in our schools armies are battling terrorism missionaries are battling darkness friends are battling cancer sometimes pastors are battling despair truth is always battling compromise in my own body every day holiness is battling my old sinful nature every day I get up it never stops The day I quit that battle is the day I lose in my fight for holiness. Truth is battling the lies. Do you ever get tired of the battles, church? I mean, even the noble battles that we're supposed to fight. When we're fighting for our kids, we're fighting for our grandkids, we're fighting for our marriages, we're fighting for our church, we're fighting for the gospel. Even the battles that we're supposed to be battling, those noble, honorable battles, do you ever just get tired of the battles in life? And along comes a child who will be a prince, but he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. Isaiah describes almost hell on earth in chapter 8, and he gets to chapter 9, and he's like, but there's a prince coming. And he's the prince of peace. One day, the conflict will end. All of it. Even the noble good battles we're in. And then the awful battles that rage all around us that should never have been fought. I think if you could have stood next to the shepherds on that very first Christmas night, you could have said, hey, let's call him Wonderful Counselor. Let's call him Mighty God. Let's call him... Everlasting father Mary might have been going no, we're calling him Jesus. (laughs) You're like, no We're we're also going to call him all of these things. We're going to call him Emmanuel On that list of names of what we would call this baby. We also get to call him Prince of Peace So I think you could have said this child also means that someday one day there's no more conflict He does help take away our confusion as the wonderful counselor He does help take away our excuses as the mighty God. But he also helps take away our conflict as the prince of peace. He takes away our loneliness as the everlasting father. He's all of those things all wrapped up in Bethlehem. And Isaiah is looking way into the future. These promises are not for this generation. They did not get to experience the character of this child. But seven centuries into the future, Isaiah was saying, helps on the way, helps on the way, and it's the character of this child that's going to make the difference. You could have said this child means one day, someday, we're not for sure when, no more conflict. He takes away our conflict. He replaces conflict and stress and worry with peace. There are, so days, there are days I'm so ready for that. It's peace to a certain extent today. You realize if you're a Christian the New Testament says we should be experiencing a peace that's beyond understanding. It's a peace that the world can't really grasp. So it's a certain level of peace today, but it's ultimate peace one day, ultimate peace one day, no conflict at all someday. Isaiah 9 is describing, now watch it, this is the most important piece. Isaiah 9 is describing a peace you can have with God. And that peace with God then spills over into peace with other people. And it even spills over into peace with yourself. But it starts with peace with God. You and I, as Skylar pointed out in Colossians, you and I are rebels against God. We, because of our sin, we're in open rebellion against God. And the greatest peace we need is for the Prince of Peace to come and restore our peace with the Creator. And he did that on the cross. But that peace with the creator then does spill over into peace in life at times and peace with each other. I I can have a peace with you that should be deeper than what lost people can experience in peace in their relationships because if you've been able to be right with the creator, you have peace with the creator and I have peace with the creator, you and I should be able to have a level of peace that's different. So it's peace that does spill over. This child takes away conflict as well. I remember reading several years ago, haven't ever tested it to see if it's true, they said in the ocean, if you can get to 25 feet or deeper, like if you could scuba dive, it does not matter what's going on on the surface. If you can get below 25 feet, it's always calm. I mean, there may be a little two or three mile an hour current that's running, but you literally could be under a hurricane. And if you can get below 25 feet, It's unaffected. Now, like I said, I'm not volunteering to test that. The next category four that comes through, I'm not putting on the scuba gear and going to go see. I'm just going to believe that, that I read it, someone tested it, and it's true. I'm saying for believers, there ought to be this element that even when the storms are raging in life, and Christians are not promised a storm-free life, but somewhere deep down, way down deeper than 25 feet in our soul. There ought to be a peace that the Prince of Peace brought. We didn't have to manufacture it. We didn't have to fake it. This child helps take away some of the conflict in my life. Maybe because he lets me have a bigger view of things. Some people often remind me, sometimes we have to ask ourselves the question over the things that are really stressing us. Will this really matter in a 1,000 years? Will this really matter in 500 years? And can I have an eternal perspective on things and maybe not be quite so stressed out about it and have a peace from the Prince of Peace? What a mighty God. What a wonderful counselor. What an everlasting father. And what a Prince of Peace, all wrapped up in a child that Isaiah says will come one day. When you celebrate Christmas this year, do it celebrating the character of this child. Look at the way this passage ends, what he says at the end of it. The very last verse, chapter 7, the last phrase, he says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What this child is going to do, he does not need any human effort to make it happen. If we want to cooperate with him in bringing peace to people's lives, we can. If we want to cooperate with him in putting him on display as the mighty God to the whole world, we should. But if Doug fails on his part, it's not Doug's plan or Doug's strength that's going to make it happen. It's the zeal of the Lord. It's the power of the Lord. When we're talking about a mighty God, we're talking about a God who will accomplish his plan because of his zeal. And i He doesn't have to manipulate it to make it happen. It is the zeal of the Lord that will make this happen. This child is a counselor. This child is a prince. This child is a father. All because this child is God. Come in the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. I'll just tell you, he's none of these things to you. He's none of these things to you. If he's not also your savior. When this child finally came, John the Baptist told the world, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If he's not the Lamb to you, then he's also not the Prince. He's also not the Father. He's not the Counselor. He's not Mighty God to you. Until he's the Savior who takes away the sin of the world to you, you don't get any of these benefits in the child. But if he is your Savior, you get all these benefits. I hope you can celebrate Christmas this year focused on the character of the child. And what I want to do before our worship team comes up in a minute, I want to give you a minute to think through which of these four titles you might need the most this December. Which one of these do you need to run to the most? His title is Mighty God in your life. His title is Prince of Peace in your life. His title is the Wonderful Counselor. Which of these, because he's all of them all the time, But at different times in my life, I've needed part of his character more than I needed others. I needed to lean on him more than I needed in a certain area than I did in another area. So as you think through the character of the child as revealed in Isaiah 9, which one in your heart do you need to cling to the most? And I want to give you just a second to pray through that and think through it. And then I'll close this in prayer and I'll invite the worship band up here in just a second. But without any other distractions, think through which of these Four names of Christ means the most to you.